Welcome to Rare On Air, the new monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month we will be exploring the challenges, successes and experiences of those who live with a rare disease. Today we are going to be hearing from Jan Lecam, Eurodis's Chief Executive Officer, as we take a trip down memory lane with the European Reference Networks, or ERNs for short. Finding the right expert to access care for a rare disease remains a challenge for many of the 30 million people living with a rare disease in Europe. Often, the only doctor who has any expertise in a disease is located in a different country to the patient. To address these challenges, in 2017, the EU created 24 European reference networks. These are networks of healthcare providers that connect doctors and researchers virtually across borders so that the expertise travels rather than the patient. Jan Lecam was there at the very inception of ERNs, and he has seen them grow from an idea into a reality that has positively transformed the lives of people living with a rare condition and their experiences of healthcare. Today, we are going to be diving into what those early days of the ERNs were like, the progress we have made since, and what Jan hopes they will achieve going forward. Later on in the episode, we will hear from our patient engagement team about their memories of how the ERNs began, led by Sarah Weiler from the Luxembourg National Alliance for Rare Diseases, and Rita Francisco, our patient engagement junior manager here at Eurodis. Jan, thank you for joining us today from the Paris office of Eurodis. Pleased to be with you, Julia. So today's episode is about the European reference networks, the ERNs. Um, but first, what first led to you becoming involved in advocating for people living with a rare disease? First and foremost, I got involved because my I have three daughters. The oldest has cystic fibrosis. She's a young woman of 32 years today. But before that, I was in fact involved in research on cancer at the international level, coordinating research programs, because I lost half of my family of different cancers, including my father, grandparents, uncle and aunt. And my background is uh, an MBA and I specialize in finance. And I wanted to bring that kind of uh, background to the civil society organizations to try to be uh, effective in our, in our uh, action. And after cancer, I was involved in, I became the director of the HIV AIDS organization in France, the major one. And along that way, I became a volunteer into cystic fibrosis. And after that, worked for the Teleton in, in, in designing the, their strategy on, on rare diseases. And along the way, creating the Eurodis uh, Rare Disease uh, Europe organization. Thank you for sharing that really personal history, Anne. So on ERNs, what were the initial motivations for establishing an ERN? We need to go back to what the situation was 20 years ago. Each patient and family were basically isolated within the national healthcare system, sometime in their local hospital or, or city, and uh, in, into the specialty of their own disease. What we have done along the way with the members of your orders is to identify that patients affected by different rare diseases across Europe were in fact facing the same kind of issues in terms of access to information, access to diagnosis, access to adapted care. And together we identified that on the average, every family or every, every person affected needed over eight different types of specialty. Oh, wow. And all started from that, from the concept of that experience of the journey of the patient's the experience of the patients in the healthcare system and this multidiscipline approach. Uh, 
which took us to think about what it means in terms of creating centers of expertise on specific disease or on group of diseases and how to network them at the national and European level. That's really the rationale behind. And some key principles derive from that. And one of them is to say expertise should travel rather than the patients. And, and that we wanted to build a system in Europe where there will be an enhancement of expertise, a collection of knowledge, and also a dissemination and application of this knowledge. No, it's such an important principle, especially given, of course, the inherent problem with rare diseases is their rarity. So sometimes, I guess, it's difficult for there to be enough data at the national level. And their extreme rarity also. And that's why another principle was all along to say everybody should have a home. So not to develop a system which will focus only on few rare diseases, but would cover the full range of the 6,000 rare diseases by creating clusters by therapeutic areas. Yeah, no, it's really, really important. And so, do you recall a particularly decisive moment which set the path for ERN's creation? Surely, and if I can mention two. One was 2006, when we have the Eurodes membership meeting, which was dedicated to brainstorm around what it means to create centers of expertise, what should be their key roles, and what it means to network them at the national European level. That was really fun. It was co-creation uh, <laughs> across disease and across countries. A second moment, which is more the, the milestone really in the journey of that, was in Vilnius in 2017, All right. after the creation of the 24 European Reference Network for Rare Diseases. And then we, ha we had on stage the 24 coordinators uh, coming and then suddenly it was embodied, it, it became live. So, in the simplest terms, how would you describe what an ERN is? The European Front Network for Rare Diseases are, in fact, connections between the best hospital services across Europe for rare diseases. I see. And we have 24 European Front Networks by group of diseases, like the rare metabolic diseases, the rare lung disease or the rare kidney disease, the rare eye disease, etc., but also for some grouping of cancers, like rare pediatric cancers. Across these four, 24 European Front networks, there are over 1,500 centers of expertise connected across Europe. Oh, wow. So it's a critical mass, which is absolutely huge, because for each of these centers, you can count a minimum of 10 clinicians and nurses and specialists around rare diseases. So, could you provide an example of how someone with, of a specific rare condition may have benefited from ERN's growth? Surely, there is in fact already, after five years, several benefits we could uh, spell out. I will mention three. One, the fact that there is many more guidelines on the good practice for diagnostic and for care of some rare diseases. And the fact that these guidelines are European and not national are really an enhancement of the quality of care across Europe. The second example I would give is that there is a real reflection in some of this European Front Network between the clinicians and the patients teaming up together to define what is the patient journey in, in the healthcare system and also within the European Front Networks and how to improve that journey. So to make it not only in terms of improving the health outcomes, 
but also improving the experience of the patients and the families themselves. The third one that comes to mind is that there is a platform which enables collaboration between the best experts across Europe for certain rare diseases, which is mostly used today to discuss the most complex diagnosis. So for the person who don't have a diagnosis, and then they can discuss together and try to put their brain and knowledge together to try to say, okay, that's the disease, or this is the additional research we need to do to find which disease it is. And, and, and this is applied across, across the board with real success already. I see. Now, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned, of course, sort of patients and clinicians working together within that answer. Was it envisioned that patients themselves, not just specialist clinicians, would play a role in the work of ERNs? It was absolutely envisaged and it was in the DNA of that initiative, I would say, because as I mentioned, we should always remember that this initiative, if it at the end, if it came to life, it's because the patients thought about it and pushed for it. On the other hand, there were initiatives that were coming from, from the legal framework, the fact that there were decisions of the European Court of Justice on issues of reimbursement of patients across borders, obliged to think about new legislations at the European level. And there were also the experience of the clinicians themselves through mostly funding from the European Commission, which were starting to collaborate within different networks. But from the beginning, it was coming from these two group of the same community to come together and somehow in the legislation, when it came out, we lost the opportunity, unfortunately, to have the patient mentioned as being co-managers, co-responsible of that overall system, hmm. which we understand because it's national healthcare system are managed by the competent authorities at the national level. And some of them were not really at ease to have patient representative like that at the but it's exactly like what you may have in, in, in a member state when you have patient representative in the board of hospitals, for instance. But there was not the readiness of all member states for that. So it's not in the legislation, which is a real limit for us and obliges us to always uh, a bit uh, ask to be involved. But at the end, what counts is what you do when you are involved yeah. and how you contribute. And that collaboration between clinician and patients really is great is most of the time working very well, is maturing, and I think is, is, is blossoming progressively. That's really great to hear. So you touch on some disappointments uh, with regard to legislation, which of course Eurodis is doing work around, but following on from that, what legislative developments and also what technological advances have helped ERNs to grow? The main legislation came out in 2011, which is called the Directive on Patients' Rights to Cross-Border Healthcare. Right. a long name, but it says the purpose, right? Uh, which is to provide cross-border healthcare. And cross-border healthcare is usually understood as I need a care and I go to another member state to get it, right? And you get it through the social security system and the bilateral agreements between the, the countries, which is within a framework of a regulation at European level. Here, it's to solve the issue of care which is not when you're going on holiday in another country or, uh, or that you're working or studying in another country, but when you decide to go in another country in order to search for a specific care, which you cannot find in your country. So the directive was created initially to address that kind of issues. And that's where, together as a community with the clinicians and the managers of the healthcare system, we came to that concept of saying, yes, that's important to have, 
But to address the, the, the needs of the largest population, what we need is to have the expertise traveling more than the people. Try to come to bring the knowledge where the people live locally, but also in their language and with their doctors, etc. So that's how this legislation was shaped. And the, the language to create the European Funds Network is in this directive of 2011. The implementation then, after that, took several years, and that's why the European Funds Network were launched in 2017. Now, from the technology, which it's mostly the digital transformation, which is coming in, into play, right? because these networks are connected through digital tools mostly, and they share data, and they share dossier files of patients, and they share different tools. So the digital transformation is important, but also all the data collection and the use of data is essential. So the technology, but also the new legislation coming in Europe in place uh, with the European Health Data Space will really frame that collaboration in order to enable to share more of the data from, right. the, from the patients, but also to protect the patients from the overuse or misuse of this data in the social context of work or insurance or, or, or bank loans, for instance. Of course, no, that makes sense. Um, so that leads me nicely on to my next question. Um, you mentioned various opportunities and, and initiatives at the European level uh, to improve uh, ERNs working. Um, but what are the main opportunities, do you believe, um, to help ERNs improve the sharing of expertise across Europe even further? First is to develop more guidelines uh, of good practice on diagnostic and care for a larger number of rare diseases. This is really the first most important thing because that has an impact all across Europe and a large number of professionals to address the needs of the persons affected. The second is the collaboration through digital tools in order to discuss the diagnostic of the undiagnosed until they have a diagnosis for their rare disease, but also of the diagnostic at different moment of the journey of the person with the disease. Right. The evolution of your disease obliged to have several diagnostic of complications or of another disease coming along called comor comorbidities. And it's not easy. It's not easy because mm. it seems that every very often you are in front of your first case with that situation, when in fact it has happened in other places in Europe. So you want to have these conversations and we want that to become routine. But it's not only for the diagnostic, it's also for the care to see how could you manage the care. And I'm talking about medicines, which is one aspect only, but the care, it can be a surgery, it mm. can be how you manage your physical therapy, it can be many aspects of the of, 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 of your nutrition uh, scheme, etc. So there may be many aspects into that. So the collaboration can really uh, be enhanced in many uh, directions. Another very important one is the training, the training of new clinicians. Uh, that's a big challenge we have in Europe to yeah. attract the right uh, human resources and competences to build a stronger network in the future. Brilliant. Um, well, yet again, you've touched on uh, the answer to my next question. Um, but actually, going even broader than sort of EU policymakers, what do you believe Eurodis, our organisation, as well as the broader European rare disease community, can do in tandem with policymakers to make sure that these opportunities for improving ERNs are seized? Many. And, <laughs> and first, 
we need to realize that what we are creating all together, all the stakeholders, is very unique. Yeah. It's the first time that there is the, the embryo of a healthcare system at the European level. Mm. And it makes sense because it is to address rarity. So there is a strong additional community added value for the people. And that's why it starts there. So it's at the margin, but it will become mainstream. I have no doubt, 10 or 20 years from now. So where we can improve is first to connect much more the European Front Network with the national healthcare system so that the impact is not only to serve the persons coming to the members of the CRN, so the hospital specialized, but as an impact across the national healthcare system. And that's what is called the healthcare pathways or, or the regional and national networks. And some countries are more advanced than others in Europe to do it. And there is a new collaboration starting to share the experience and try to develop it in every member state. So that will take three, five years, but we're really moving in that direction. That's very positive. A second important one is to have the proper funding for this European reference network. So for the coordination, that's a funding that needs to come from the European level. But as the European First Network will grow in terms of mission, in terms of number of hospitals, in terms of work, that funding needs to grow with that gain of experience and, and, and greater impact. But also the member states need to, needs to fund the local hospitals specializing in rare diseases to have the right uh, human resource, the right equipment, the time sufficient also to uh, to be with the families and, and the person affected, but also the time to collect the data and to use all of that. So there is a lot of and of need. And another one on which we are very much focused at the moment also is the public, public partnership into it, that member states together with the European Commission need to collaborate not only into these healthcare networks, but also to create the clinical research networks attached to it, right. so that we are scaling up the capacity for Europe and make Europe more attractive for clinical uh, trial, clinical research. Uh, and the last one will be, for me, the public-private partnership. Okay. We cannot miss the opportunity of uh, bringing more together the companies who are developers of product or which have a product approved uh, for a, a disease to partner with these networks of experts and with the patients uh, in, in, in a structured way, in a safe way, transparent way, but again, to scale up and to be able to generate more rapidly, more knowledge on more rare diseases in order to serve and support more persons affected by one of these rare diseases. Well, Jan, thank you. You've clearly highlighted lots of areas where great work is in motion. But of course, alongside that, there is lots more work to be done. Jan, thank you for joining. Thank you to you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jan Lecam, Chief Executive Officer of Eurodis. You will now be hearing a conversation led by our colleague Rita Francisco and our friend Sarah Whaler from the Luxembourg National Alliance for Rare Diseases, who talked to Matt Balls-Johnson and Lenio Viha, two of Eurodis' experts on European reference networks. Hello everyone, I am Rita Francisco. And I am Sarah Weiler. Today we will be joined by Matt Balls-Johnson, who is our ERN and healthcare advisor here at Eurodis and Linia Wier, the Senior Manager of the Patient Engagement Team specializing in ERNs and European Patient Advocacy Groups. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be with, with you today doing this walk through Manway Lane. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us as well. So, okay, the first 
question is, well, basically, like I said, you've done a lot of work in developing and shaping the ERNs. And looking back, um, what do you think is, if you had to pick one, what would be the, the most important decisive action or contribution that you've given to the ERNs? One situation came to mind quite, uh, uh, quite easily. Um, when at the eve of the ERNs being formed, the Board of Member States was reviewing the applications and the assessment which had been made of the 24 applications for the networks. And I worked with Jan and Valentina and uh, we as a community, we wanted to show solidarity of all 24 networks. How do you pick when one is more important than the other? And going into that meeting of the member states to make the decision on which to award the, the status of being ERNs, we wrote a letter to the board of member states, each of the members and the commission calling for all 24 approved, recognizing that it was a moment in history that we all were had a hand in. And it was an opportunity for um, not just a selected number of networks to be recognized, but for uh, all the networks to be recognized and be launched at the same time, giving um, equality and uh, re equal representation of the patient community, not leaving anyone behind. We bet that when patient representatives first came together, uh, for, for example, for the first meeting, there was, of course, a lot of excitement involved. Can you share with us how it felt or any specific episode you'd like to share with us? We worked with the patient community uh, to make it visible about the opportunity. And we got their opinions on, you know, how many ERNs, what what th thematic clustering this should be um, so they had a, a chance to say where they felt their rare disease sat best and so we we had a number of events and and what we had any one of Eurodice's membership meetings and I can't remember which city it was in and we did a number of workshops with the patient representatives and it was really uh, electric um, the energy in the room, we explained about the application process, the assessment process, and then we did, went into breakout groups and we, you know, the doors shut and people were spilling out of the room and trying to get in to, the, to, to contribute and to get involved. And, and I thought that energy was, was brilliant. It was, um, we all knew something magical was happening happening and one of my favorite memories i have to add is the picture of all 24 network coordinators holding their certificate like 12 year old kids getting their grades at school they were so proud of as punch and to say that they're all distinguished professors being you know it it just was really humbling how much it meant to them those are indeed very meaningful and magical memories, Matt. Um, and now before we end our conversation for today, we would like to take you back in time. So let's do this small uh, time traveling exercise. So imagine that you could go back in time and talk to your 2016 self and tell him where the RNs and the EPACs are today. How would your 2016 self feel about how far we have come?
I, I think my 2016 self would be nervous about the the first few years because it's you know the it almost could be become bureaucratic and administrative all that work and and getting past that but I think I would be pleased to to know that the the vision of this was the right one. So our final guest today is Lenya, Lenya Villa and Lenya we would like to start by asking you, because I think we are all very curious here to know what was the idea and the thinking behind the creation of the European Patient Advocacy Groups, also known as EPACs. What were the grounding values that you wanted to promote? The idea of EPACs was and still is to create forums for solidarity, um, dialogue and unity in the patient community. A safe space where the community, where EPEC advocates can meet to collaborate and to work together in a, in a trustful environment. And especially at the beginning, um, in 2016 and 17, um, the EPECs um, needed to be um, unified and perceived as a strong and valued and impactful um, stakeholder group, confident and able to relay people's needs and to represent the patient voice because we were promoting a new, we were facilitating the implementation of a new patient partnership approach with each of the EINs. The EPACs were a brand new creation, right? Meaning that there was no existing structure or platform that you could use to help you build it. You had to do it from scratch. So can you share with us, how did you find the first EPAC advocates? Unlike the clinical community, we didn't have an official call of expression of interest to create, create the EPACs. But with the addendum to the USERT recommendation, which states that patient representatives um, should be part of the decision-making structures, should be part of the committees of rare disease EINs, we had a mandate to create the EPACs. So with this mandate, we worked with Eurodis member patient organizations and we reached out to many other patient organizations based in Europe, which are not members of Eurodis, to create the 24 EPACs. We created an EPAC for each emerging and existing EIN, and we did that in early 2016. And we found the first EPAC advocates, I think we, the first EPAC advocates, we had around 60, um, through an open call and an election process. Thank you, Lenya, for giving us a taste, a small taste of what those first days were like. And you have been working with the EPACs and making sure that the patient voice is at the heart of what the RNs do, as well as focused on building successful and very resilient patient-clinician partnerships since the beginning, so for many, many years now. And you have definitely been faced with many different challenges, weathered many storms, but also seen and celebrated many achievements, many victories too. So our $1 million question or Euro question for you is how have you been able to keep yourself and the team motivated? What's your secret? Please do tell. I like to bring people together. So creating and accompanying EPAC advocates and facilitating exchanges between them, um, you know, coming from different countries with different cultures, speaking different languages, representing the whole spectrum of rare diseases 
allowing for all that expertise and that Latin power to emerge so that we can use it as a team in, in an intentional way, um, working towards shared goals is very uh, rewarding to me and uh, an energizing uh, work environment. It's a way of feeling as a team where we are learning together, changing together and growing together. Um, you know, working towards defining our vision and our action plans that are aligned with our goals and intentions. So, um, yeah, working with the EPEX came naturally to me and has left me since 2016. We are going to finish the discussion with the same question that we asked Matt. Imagine you could travel back in time, talk to your 2016 self and tell them where the year ends and the EPEX are today. How would your 2016 self feel about how far you've come? I think the Lenya in 2016 would probably be very happy that we made sure that the EINs have been developed in a patient-centered way and that we have you know, patient representation in all of the 24 EIN boards in, in most of the clinical committees and that, um, that we are partners in the development and running of the, of the networks. And in many cases, our involvement is not only a tick box exercise. Um, still, the Lenya from 2016 would probably want to remind the Lenya today that what we wanted was to make sure that the EPACs are not only sitting at the table with clinicians and researchers, but that it is our table as well. And that is a wrap. Matt, Lenya, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rita and Sarah. You have been listening to Rare On Air, a Eurodis Rare Diseases Europe podcast with me, Julian Poulan. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe so you can tune in next month to learn more about the world of rare diseases. Do you have any reflections from today's episode that you would like to share? Feel free to email us at rareonair at eurodis.org. We look forward to you joining us next month. <laughs>